everyone, and welcome to True Crime Tea. I'm your host, Angela Nicole Chu, and this is episode one! So really quick, I'm going to get into the purpose of this podcast for like 60 seconds, just a really short intro, and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes of today's tale. So again, the name's Angela Nicole Chu. I'm a 28-year-old published author from Louisville, Kentucky, which is in the United States for any international listeners out there. Um, if you're as big on the Myers-Briggs scale as I am, I am an ENFPA personality. All that you to know about me, just look up ENFPA and it'll give my life story basically. I'm dead serious. Um, But yeah, I've been raised on true crime since I was a baby, so doing this podcast shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone. So of course I watched, you know, Barney and Sesame Street, but it was just as normal for my mom to have Dateline Mysteries and 48 Hours playing on the television just as much as children's shows, even before it was like a year old. So I know it's weird to some people, but true crime is just normal to me. And you know, All the books that I've written, they've got, you know, true crime storylines to them. So that's another example of it being heavily prevalent in my life. My entire family, both my mom and my dad's side, love true crime. My in-laws love true crime. My friends love true crime. So, you know, this is just another reason I'm presenting true crime to you the listener, my adoring listeners out there who are here for the very first episode. Now, some of the stories in True Crime Tea will be widely known cases and others will be smaller affairs, you know, just small time things that didn't make, you know, nationwide or international wide news. It just depends on what fits my fancy for that week as to what you guys are going to hear. Some of these cases will be solved. They'll be, you know, finished up at the end with this is what happened the end and others are unsolved cases. Now, I know some cases do become solved as time goes on and I'm thankful for that. So if there's ever a situation where I do an episode and there's an unsolved case and later on there's some more development, I'll come back and do like a small bonus episode whenever that occurs, even if it's midweek. So that way you guys get that update to the story. Um, New episodes are gonna be out every Monday, so that's perfect for your weekly commute. So, you know, again, I know this is gonna be on iTunes and this is going to be on Spotify. I'm gonna look into Google Play as well for you Android users, Um, but keep an eye out every Monday Monday, and that's when you guys are gonna have new episodes of True Crime Team. Now that wasn't so bad, right? Like, I know a lot of podcasts spend like the first 30 minutes of their very first episode telling all about their life story and you know even when it's interesting it takes away from the podcast I feel like so I didn't want to do that if you want to know more about me I've got a website I've got social media up the wazoo uh, you can just message me on social media which is at the Angie Chew for pretty much everything um, my website as well is the Angie angiechew.net. So again, I don't want to just babble on about my life on the podcast. You guys can message me or creep me or whatever you want to do. Um, Just don't stalk me. Okay. Deal? Deal. So enough about me. Let's get into some true crime tea. So I wanted to kick this podcast off with a bang, and I figured the best way to do that is to go over one of my favorite true crime stories. I feel, I've always felt weird saying I have favorite true crime stories because they're crimes that happen to people. So, I mean, it seems a little off color to say that, but everyone has those stories that, you know, They hear them and they stay with them. And, you know, from the second you hear it, you're looking it up on Google and Wikipedia and wanting to absorb this information and know more about, you know, the person and the family and the suspects and everything like that. And so, you know, as taboo as it sounds, like, you do have favorite true crime stories. And so I'm going to bring one of mine to you guys today. And this is the story of, drumroll please, Elisa Lamb. 
So some of you guys out there probably just squealed much like I would, but others are probably going, who the heck is Elisa Lamb? Well, this is one of the oddest, most chilling, and most mysterious true crime stories out there. Um, one reason for that is it's recent. When a lot of people think true crime, they think of things that happened in the 1800s, the early 1900s, and that's just not the case. True crime is still happening every single day. And a lot of the stories I'm going to bring to you guys are more of the recent true crime stories. So this is one that happened just over five years ago in January 2013. It happened to a young girl named Elisa Lamb and it, it, it's a mystery, you know, was what happened to Elisa Lamb a result of untreated mental illness? Was it foul play? Was there drug use involved? Or was it even the result of a paranormal Asian elevator game? Who knows? There's a lot of explanations out there. We'll get into those later in the podcast. So pull up your britches, guys. You know, hang on to your panties and let's get started. Gotta, gotta change the music, though. There we go. That's much better. So, Elisa Lam, um, a little bit of backstory. Elisa Lam was the daughter of Chinese immigrants, David and Yena Lam. They were from Hong Kong, but they had immigrated to Vancouver, Canada, where they all resided in the Burnaby suburbs. They had two daughters, they had Elisa and they had Sarah, and together the Lambs all owned and operated a restaurant called Paul's Restaurant. Where did the name Paul come from? I'm not really sure. I couldn't find that when I looked it up, but they ran a place called Paul's Restaurant, so whoever you are, Paul, I'm sure the Lambs are treating your food very well. But Elisa, um, she was also sometimes known by her traditional Cantonese name, which was Lam Ho Yi, and she was born on April 30th, 1991. So this is even more chilling because she's younger than me. She was a year younger than me. Um, but after finishing high school, she became a student at Vancouver University's uh, University of British Columbia. So, you know, she's just an ordinary girl, just like most people in their 20s. Uh, she had a lot of interests such as reading, psychology, comedy, traveling, movies, gaming. She loved spending time with her friends and her family. She loved the fashion industry, which was a similarity that she shared with her sister, Sarah, and she was also a blogger. Um, beginning in mid-2010, she started a blog called Ether Fields, which was hosted on Blogspot. Um, if any of you guys don't know what Blogspot is, it's a free hosting site for blogs. It's not really popular anymore, but it was all the rage, you know, kind of in that stage when LiveJournal was fizzling out. You guys remember LiveJournal. But anyway, Elisa used her Etherfields blog to post photos from fashion shows that she liked, um, some of her favorite quotes from movies and books, and also updates on her day-to-day -day life. A frequent topic on Etherfields revolved around Elisa's battle with mental illness. So during high school, Elisa had been diagnosed with both bipolar disorder and depression. And as a result, she took four medications to help her condition, which were Welbutrin, Lamictal, Seroquel, and Effexor. And she also used her blog as, you know, kind of a form of therapy to let people know what was going on in her head and kind of get that out and transpire it into paper. And that really helped her out to deal with her mental illness. So whereas Elisa was very open about her mental illness, at least on her blog, um, the rest of her family kept it a secret. So other family members, friends, acquaintances did not know about Elisa's bipolar disorder or depression. Um, but Elisa didn't really care. She continued to be very open about it on Ether Fields. And in January 2012, Elisa actually made a blog post where she admitted that she'd had a recent relapse which was right at the start of her school semester, and that forced her to drop several of her classes. She lamented that dropping the classes left her to feel, quote, so utterly directionless and lost, and she feared that her transcript was going to look, you know, kind of odd and suspicious 
due to having so many withdrawals at once right at the start of a semester. And she was really nervous that, you know, having her transcript with these withdrawals would lead to the rest of her classwork being in jeopardy or ultimately being unable to attend graduate school, which was her end goal. So this particular blog post was titled, You're Always Haunted by the Idea That You're Wasting Your Time. And this was a quote from her favorite novelist, Chuck Palahniuk. And he is the author of the award-winning novel Fight Club, which was also made into a movie. Um, so Elisa loved Chuck's work. Um, actually, in mid-2012, she abandoned Blogspot completely, as I mentioned before, it was kind of going by the wayside anyway, but she switched over to Tumblr, which is another blog platform that is still popular to this day, um, at least as of August 2018 when I am recording this. Um, so she titled this new blog, Nouvelle Nouveau, and it had an epitaph on it, which was the exact same quote from her January 2012 mental illness update. You're always haunted by the idea that you're wasting your life. So obviously, Elisa did not like the idea of wasting her life. She wanted to make sure she was doing something with her life. And so as most 20-somethings wanted to do, Elisa was itching to see the world. Um, she didn't have the ability to go you know, on this big international trip at this point, but she did plan something that she called her West Coast tour. So this was a trip that she decided to take in January 2013 when she was 21 years old. And her plan was to ride from Vancouver all the way down to San Diego, California, and then to work her way back up through Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, and finally San Francisco before heading home. Um, of course, David and Yenna Lamb were very nervous about this trip, especially since Elisa was going by herself, but they agreed that she should be allowed to go as long as she promised to keep in touch with them. They did not want her going days without being in touch or anything like that. They wanted to know she was safe and they also wanted to know she was having fun on her trip. So Elisa traveled on her own for the entire trip. She just used Amtrak and city buses. So she arrived in San Diego first and she had a blast. She visited the San Diego Zoo and she posted pictures from there onto her Facebook page and also onto her Nouveau Nouvelle blog on Tumblr. Um, she was extremely excited about this trip. She loved what she was experiencing. And so it wasn't an issue to keep in near constant contact with her friends and family to let them know, hey guys, I just did this, you know, check this out. Let me send you a picture. So they knew what Elisa was up to pretty much at all times. So then on January 26th, Elisa arrived in Los Angeles for the next leg of her trip. She wanted to conserve funds, so she checked into a modest budget hotel, which was only a few blocks away from the notorious Skid Row. So for anyone who doesn't know, Skid Row is one of the poorest places in the United States. 41.6 uh, of its population of only 17,000 people live under the poverty line. And the per capita income of families is only $14,000. I, I can't even imagine that, like these poor people. And the name Skid Row came from the fact that there is such a huge number of homeless people in this area. So the area was actually named thanks to, unfortunately, how poverty-stricken it was. But as a result, housing was incredibly cheap. It's a popular destination for international tourists as a result, so they can save some money. And Elisa Lamb saw the prices of what is called the Cecil Hotel in Skid Row, and she decided that's where she needed to stay. So the Cecil Hotel, it might sound a little familiar to you guys and there's a reason for that. Um, it was originally built as a hotel for businesses in the early 1920s, but after the Great Depression that hit in 1929, the Cecil Hotel fell on some hard times. I mean, people couldn't really travel and unfortunately it never could reclaim its former glory of a business hotel thanks to how, you know, the conditions of Skid Row depreciated around it. So. 
you know, it was always kind of a shadier hotel after the Great Depression, but there's also another stigma to it. A string of dark activity has caused a lot of people to stay away from the Cecil Hotel. Not the fact that it's in Skid Row, but just some of the dark things that have happened in it. Whereas some, you know, true crime nuts have flocked to the Cecil Hotel as a result. So it's known for having several murders take place on the premises. Um, one was the Black Dahlia murder. So this was the murder of Elizabeth Short. Uh, she was last seen alive at the Cecil Hotel shortly before her death in 1947, and her case has never been solved. Um, another unsolved murder that took place at the Cecil was that of Goldie Osgood. So Goldie Osgood was known as the Pigeon Lady of Pershing Square, thanks to her daily ritual of feeding the pigeons in the nearby park, but unfortunately she was found raped and murdered in her Cecil Hotel room in 1964, and again, that is unsolved as well. Um, two serial killers, resided at the Cecil Hotel during their separate murder sprees. One was Jack Unterweger and the other was Richard Ramirez. Um, there've also been a high number of suicides that have taken place at the Cecil. A lot of people, for some reason, decide to go to the Cecil right before they die. And there's actually one unfortunate incident where a jumper jumped from the ninth floor and she landed on a pedestrian below on the street and it killed both the jumper and the pedestrian immediately. So again, the Cecil Hotel's got uh, a spooky reputation and that's been more than enough to keep a lot of people away and that's another big reason why the Cecil has continued to be such a cheap and easily affordable hotel. So 21-year-old Lisa arrives at the Cecil Hotel on January 26, 2013. And um, originally she was staying on the hotel's fifth floor with roommates. So the Cecil had arrangements where you could stay for extended periods of time and to get costs even lower, you could stay with other people. So Elisa originally had these roommates. Uh, she liked them a lot, but after only a few days, they complained to the staff that Elisa was exhibiting what they called odd behaviors. It's never been specified, but they said she had odd behaviors. And as a result, they moved Elisa to a room by herself. So Lisa stayed in this room by herself, and on January 31st, 2018, which was five days after she arrived in Los Angeles and three days after she moved to her own room, uh, hotel staff recalled seeing Elisa walking around the hotel. Um, she was alone, but she was acting perfectly normal. It was her last day in Los Angeles. She was going to check out soon, and she just wanted to get some books for her trip as well as, you know, some to bring home to her family. So the bookstore that Elisa went to, uh, the manager remembers her coming into shop. She said Elisa was outgoing, very lively, very friendly. Um, she purchased a lot of books to take home to her family and specifically she was asking if one of her books would be too heavy to carry as she continued her travels back north, especially since she would likely pick up more gifts and souvenirs on the way. So the manager helped Elisa out, and eventually she made her purchases, she returned to the Cecil, and she disappeared. Just poof, gone, Elisa was nowhere to be found. Um, so of course she had been maintaining frequent communication with her friends and her family, and she also had frequent social media updates, like most 20-somethings on a trip. So her disappearance was just screaming that something was wrong, you know, this girl was nowhere to be found and that was completely different from how she normally was. So after all attempts to contact her had failed, David and Yenna Lamb contacted the LAPD and reported her as missing. And then they immediately flew from British Columbia to Los Angeles to help search for their daughter. So police were kind of in a bind. Um, they were able to search the hotel, but not completely because they didn't have a warrant. Since there was no sign of foul play, they couldn't get a warrant to further search the hotel, so they could only look in certain areas. They couldn't search 
individual rooms because there is no probable cause to believe a crime had been committed, but they still did take police dogs to search Elisa's room and to walk around the building and check in different areas like the kitchen and such. But the police dogs weren't able to detect her scent and police themselves and her parents weren't able to find any trace of Elisa. So they held off on, you know, putting more publicity out there. It could be a case where, you know, she was a runaway or something. But after nearly a week on February 6th, it had become clear she was not a runaway. She wasn't using her cell phone. She wasn't using her cards. So police finally made her case public. Uh, the media started circulating her story, you know, nationwide. Uh, flyers with her photo were passed out throughout the nearby neighborhoods. So not just Skid Row, but the other surrounding neighborhoods in case she had just wandered away. And unfortunately, still no new leads came out of this. So no one submitted information. No one had seen her. It was like this girl had just vanished into thin air. So, you know... Everyone was kind of at a loss of what to do, you know, what could happen next when no leads were coming in. And so a week after that, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, um, you know, two weeks after Elisa was last seen, the LAPD decided to release a video of the last known whereabouts of Elisa Lam. This video camera was the last thing to capture a sighting of Elisa Lam and they needed to get it out there. So the video in question takes place in one of the Cecil Hotel's elevators. Um, it's just security camera footage, but the video quickly went viral because Elisa was acting really, really strange in this footage. Um, I'm not sure if any of you guys listening have seen the video. You can literally just search Elisa Lamb elevator on Google or YouTube and find the footage very quickly. It's it's out there, it's unedited, it's real. Um, but, you know, most people believe the elevator footage could be a key to this entire case, but no one knows what is going on in this elevator footage. There's a lot of theories of what happened. So I'm going to explain what happened in this footage for you guys. Again, if you can pull it up on a computer, I recommend watching it as well, because it's one thing to hear me tell you about it, but it's another to actually see this footage and see her mannerisms. So the camera in the elevator was angled downward, so you've got a full view of the interior cab of the elevator, as well as a view of some of the hallway outside of the elevator. Um, the footage is grainy, the timestamps at the bottom are obscured, and there are times when Elisa appears to be talking and her mouth gets pixelated. Um, you know, LAPD said this footage is unedited, and a lot of people say it seems like something out of a scary movie, like footage that would be made for a horror film. So in the footage, it starts with Elisa entering the elevator. Uh, she walks in from the left side of the hallway and she's wearing a red hoodie and black shorts and she has black sandals on her feet. She walks to the control panel and she selects several floors. She pushes the button for several floors and then she steps back into the corner of the elevator. Uh, the door doesn't close. It's most likely jammed because she just pushed a lot of buttons. So she steps up to the door after a couple seconds and she leans her head out into the hallway. She looks in both directions and then she quickly jumps back inside. And she backs herself up against the wall of the hallway and she shuffles over into the corner with the control panel and the door is still open through all of this. So she walks up to the door again after a few seconds and this time she stands in the doorway. Then she steps into the hallway, she looks to one side, looks to the other, and then goes back in the elevator. She looks to, you know, her right once more, and then she steps back in the hallway. She walks around the corner, so she's disappeared mostly from view. You can see parts of her from time to time, um, because the door is still open. And eventually she comes back over, raises up her right arm, and she walks back into the elevator. Uh, she pushes her hands on both sides of the doorframe, and then she goes back over to the control panel. She presses several more buttons, including some buttons multiple times, and then she walks back out of the elevator and presses her hands against her ears. This whole time, 
the door is still open. It is not closing. So Elisa turns to the right and she starts rubbing her forearms together. And then she waves her hands out to her sides and her palms are stretched flat. Her fingers are sticking straight out. She kind of bows forward and she starts rocking back and forth. And then she walks away to the left, which is the direction she initially came from. And as soon as she walks away, the door finally closes. So the door to the elevator would not close with Elisa in its presence. I've even, like, I've seen this video so many times I've even got chills just kind of reminiscing over it as I'm telling you guys about this right now. So one place this video was submitted was on uh, China's video sharing site Yuku. Um, and the video received 3 million views and over 40,000 comments within just a few days. Um, of course, more millions of views and comments were also on YouTube because LAPD had had the footage wind up on YouTube for, you know, other viewers. And a reflecting theme is that most people found the video very unsettling to watch. It had you know, kind of a haunted nature to it, you know, something just wasn't right, especially with the door not wanting to close. If she was anywhere near that elevator, she had to return from where she had started for the door to close. And on top of this, no one had seen Elisa since this happened. This was the last time she was seen walking back to what was presumably her room and the elevator door finally closing. So, with Elisa gone, many theories based on this elevator footage started to surface, with people attempting to explain her actions and to deduce where she might be. Um, you know, very few people were trolling about this. People were honestly just trying to say where they thought Elisa could be and what she was doing in that video. Um, one theory that came up was the idea that she was being pursued. You know, in a panic, she might have been trying to just go to a different floor, any floor, to get away from whoever was after her. And that could explain why, in a state of fear, she pushed so many buttons, and then she was hopping in and out of the elevator and pacing around because she was trying to keep an eye out for her assailant. And, you know, eventually she gives up and just kind of runs away. And unfortunately, that's when the elevator unjams. Um, another theory that came up is that she was under the influence of party drugs like ecstasy. Um, one member of the LAPD, Trinka Parata, who is a club drug expert, uh, she states that some of Elisa's behavior closely mimics that of those under the influence of party drugs like ecstasy and MDMA. Parada states that it looks like Elisa was petting something, she was dancing, and to Parada it looked like Elisa had taken, you know, maybe MDMA, which is also known as Molly, um, or some other hallucinogenic drug, and, um, you know, getting in and out of the elevator and getting into the corners of the elevator looked like paranoia. Um, which is also a sign of using these drugs. Um, eventually, Elisa's history with mental illness did become public knowledge, and more theories began to emerge that she was just having, unfortunately, a psychotic episode. Um, that would also correspond with the odd behaviors reported by her roommates on January 26th. You know, they said she was just acting really odd, they weren't comfortable with her in the room, uh, it did become known Elisa had stopped taking some of her medication in the days leading up to her disappearance. And when you stop taking that medication, cold turkey, it really messes with you. So, you know, they have a point. Um, it could have been a psychotic episode where she was paranoid and even hallucinating, but not because of party drugs, because of the absence of prescription medicine. Um... But, you know, all three theories were valid, but still there's no way to determine where Elisa had gone. Uh, the days were tricking by, there's still no sign of her, it was just like she disappeared off the face of the earth. And then a fourth theory came to life. So, <clears throat> this is where I hope I don't lose you guys, because we are going to take a step into the paranormal for about three minutes. So, for any skeptics out there, this is still really interesting. You can find a lot about this online, both pertaining to Elisa Lam and not pertaining to her. But it is another theory of what Elisa was doing in that elevator. 
So there is something called the Elevator Game. It's a ritual that's based on an urban legend and it's extremely popular in Asian countries. Remember that Elisa was, you know, the daughter of Chinese immigrants, so it's obvious that she would have known about this ritual. And what the elevator game does is if you perform it correctly, it can take you to an alternate dimension and allow you to communicate with spirits from another world. So again, for you true crime nuts that are skeptics, don't leave me, stay with me. This is a valid fourth theory, but I don't wanna cover the three out of four theories on Elisa's disappearance without covering the fourth one. That would not be doing this podcast justice. That would not be doing Elisa justice. So here is how you play the elevator game. The elevator game must be played in a building with 10 or more floors. A player must ride it alone and visit very different floors in a very specific order. So if you're curious, Here's how to play. Play at your own discretion. Uh, True Crime T is not responsible for anything that happens to you. So, to play the elevator game, you must enter the elevator on the first floor. You must be alone, and if anyone else is in the elevator with you, do not proceed. Press the button for the fourth floor. When the elevator reaches the fourth floor, do not get out. Instead, press the button for the second floor. When you reach the second floor, press the button for the sixth floor. When you reach the sixth floor, again, press the button for the second floor. This time, when you reach the second floor, press the button for the tenth floor. And when you reach the tenth floor, press the button for the fifth floor. So here's where things start to get really weird. When you reach the fifth floor, a young woman may enter the elevator. Pay attention to these words. Do not look at her. Do not speak to her. She is not what she seems. Just ignore her completely. So whether or not the woman enters on the fifth floor, you want to press the button for the first floor. If the elevator starts ascending to the 10th floor instead, then you have succeeded at the elevator game and you may proceed. But if the elevator descends to the first floor as normal, exit the elevator as soon as the doors open. Do not look back. Do not speak. Regardless of if the woman got in on the fifth floor, don't look back, don't say a word. But if you do successfully reach the 10th floor, you can either choose to leave the elevator or to stay in it. If you choose to leave the elevator and the young woman from the fifth floor is still in the elevator with you, she may ask, where are you going? Do not answer her, do not look at her, do not turn around, just walk out of the elevator and you will know that you've arrived in another realm by one indication and one indication only. The only person present in it is you. So the question becomes, did Elisa play a botched elevator game? Did she have a mental breakdown? Was she being pursued by some unseen danger? Had she gone to a party and taken some party drugs? Find out in two minutes after these words from our sponsors. Hey guys, would you like a chance to earn between $16 and $22 an hour while working from home? Do you want an opportunity that's easy and fun to do that's not a scam? Well, look no further than VIP Kid. VIP Kid is an online Chinese education firm that offers an American elementary school educational experience to Chinese students between the ages of 4 and 12. VIP Kid was founded in 2013 by Cindy Mi and it is headquarters in Beijing, China. Luckily for all of you True Crime Tea fans, you can teach with VIP Kid right from your own home. No moving to China! I have been an ESL teacher for VIP Kid since October 2017 and it is the absolute best. I honestly get to choose my own schedule and work around any of my trips and my 9 to 5 and I get to teach wonderful students the basics of English through pre-made slides and games. So there's no making my own slides, I just get to hop into my desk and go. VIP Kid has over 6,000 ESL teachers and more than 500,000 students and they are looking to expand outside of China to other areas like Korea and India and that means 
they need more teachers. To get started with VIP Kid, go to bit.ly slash VIP Kid Chew. Again, that's bit.ly slash V-I-P-K-I-D-C-H-U to sign up. This will expedite your application process and it'll lead to you being a fully certified ESL teacher with VIP Kid in no time. Using my promo code also lists me as your mentor so I can reach out and email you and help you with the interview process at any time. So again, you can earn $16 to $22 an hour legitimately and funly by going to bit.ly slash VIP Kid Chew. Online shopping is the best, right? Well, what if you could earn money back just from doing your normal shopping? No fine print, no gimmicks, no fees. I wouldn't do that to you guys. Just cold, hard cash. Introducing Ebates. Ebates is a cashback website headquartered in San Francisco, California. The premise is simple. Sign up for Ebates. Make purchases from popular retailers like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Kohl's, and more, and earn money back. It's really that simple. I bought a new lawnmower this past June from Walmart. I spent $130 on the lawnmower, but I earned $15 back for doing it, and that $13 went straight into my PayPal account. I've been using Ebates for about a year, and I love it. It's so easy, it works, and it's not a scam. If you're gonna be doing shopping in a physical store, you can still use Ebates as well. Just use the Ebates app to link your credit or debit card to the app itself, then select the store name that you're currently shopping in, and when you check out using that credit or debit card, the points will still automatically be transferred onto your Ebates account. Your account is paid out at the end of each month, so you'll get a little something special from PayPal each month. To sign up for Ebates, go to bit.ly slash ebateschew. Again, that's bit.ly slash e-b-a-t-e-s-c-h-u. When you sign up using that special link, you get an instant $10 credit that can be spent with any online retailer. So again, that's bit.ly slash ebateschew. Start earning that moolah today. So at this point, it'd been more than two weeks since Elisa Lamb mysteriously disappeared, and still no trace of her had surfaced at the Cecil Hotel. There were four prominent theories with no real evidence to back any of them up. But while they were trying to figure out what happened to Elisa Lamb, a new problem was plaguing the Cecil Hotel. So the hotel started experiencing some sort of water failure. So. A couple days after the elevator video was released, guests started complaining of low water pressure coming from all the faucets in the rooms. Um, the water that flowed out of the faucets also appeared to be discolored and it had a strange taste. So, one woman who was interviewed, her name was Sabrina Bogg, and she was a tourist from Great Britain who was staying at the Cecil Hotel during February 2013. Um, she said the water did have a funny taste to it, but seeing the rundown conditions of Skid Row, she never thought anything of it. She just thought, you know, that was how it was at the Cecil Hotel. There's got to be a reason the hotel's so cheap. Um, so she actually said in her interview, the shower was awful. When you turned the tap on, the water came out black for around the first couple of seconds, and then it would turn back to normal. And another guest said, the tap water tasted absolutely terrible. It had a very funny, sweetie, disgusting taste to it. It's a very strange taste. I can barely describe it. So you've got low water pressure, you've got discolored water, and you've got water that tastes really weird. So on the morning of February 19th, which was five days after the elevator video was released and about three weeks after Elisa Lamb disappeared, uh, the CISA hotel staff had gotten enough complaints that they sent a worker up to the roof to check out the hotel's water tanks and to figure out, you know, what was causing these water issues. So there are four tanks and they all lie suspended 10 feet over a heavy, heavily secured area that has alarm systems in place. 
And the worker just started opening up the tanks, kind of looking around, seeing, you know, what was going on, were they operating correctly, to try to figure out the cause of the water issues. So, he opened up one of the tanks during this inspection, and he discovered there was a body floating inside of one of the thousand-gallon water tanks. So, this body was completely nude, it was covered in a sand-like substance, and the individual's clothes and personal belongings were floating around them in the tank as well. And uh, police came to check this out, of course, and it was unfortunately determined that this was the body of Elisa Lamb. Um, they also determined that she'd been floating around in this water tank for nearly three weeks, uh, decomposing in the tank that provided water to guest rooms, a kitchen, and a coffee shop. Uh, yeah. So the maintenance hatch was too small to get the equipment inside that was needed to retrieve Elisa's body. So instead, uh, workers in the LAPD drained the water tank and cut it open instead. Um, at this point, they retrieved Elisa's body, and they also determined that the clothing that was floating around in the tank uh, matched what she was wearing in that mysterious elevator video. Her room key and her watch were some of the other personal effects that were floating around in the tank with her. So, you know, three weeks in a water tank. Um, her body was moderately decomposed and bloated, and her skin was greenish, apparently. Um, an autopsy was conducted, of course, to figure out what had happened, and they determined that no physical trauma or sexual assault had occurred to Elisa Lamb. They also ruled out a suicide as a factor in her death. A toxicology test showed that there were traces of Welbutrin, Lamictal, Seroquel, and Effexor, which were the four medicines for mental illness that Elisa had been taking for years, but not all of them were in complete dosages to match what she should have in her system on January 31st, so again, it was determined that she had stopped taking some of her medication uh, before her disappearance. They also found uh, over-the-counter medicine like Sinutab and ibuprofen in her system and a very small amount of alcohol. But even with, you know, all of these things combined, uh, there was nothing alarming. There weren't any recreational drugs. There were no red flags to say she had taken something she shouldn't that led to this occurring. So by June 2013, once, you know, all the processes had come in, it was officially ruled that Elisa Lamb had passed away tragically as a result of an accidental overdose. But the larger question that remained was, how on earth did she get into that water tank in the first place? So the, the story gets weirder, you guys. So the doors and stairs that lead to the roof of the Cecil Hotel are locked. Only staff members that possess the right passcodes and keys um, can get onto the roof, and any attempt to force the doors would trigger an alarm. So even if Elisa was being pursued or she was on party drugs, which she wasn't, um, if she tried to force the door open to get a rooftop view, the alarm would have sounded and people you know, security would have come up and gotten her. Um, but what they didn't account for was the fire escape. So at first the Cecil Hotel said there's no way Elisa could have used the fire escape, but a Chinese tourist visited the Cecil Hotel shortly after Elisa's death um, was announced, and he posted a video online that showed him starting within his room at the Cecil Hotel and easily being able to access the roof by the fire escape. Um, also damaging, when he got up to the roof by the fire escape, uh, he knows that two of the water tank's lids were wide open. So one water tank was out of commission because it had been drained and cut open. There were three left and two out of three, the lid was just wide open. So good going, CISO Hotel, <laughs> get going. Um, but even still, which the Chinese tourists admitted, uh, the tanks were about eight feet tall and they were propped up even higher off the ground thanks to the concrete blocks that they were sitting on. So you've got, you know, 
10, 11 feet to get to the top of any of the water tanks. And there's no fixed access to the tank. You know, the worker that came up to investigate on the morning of February 19th had to bring his own ladder to the top to access any of the tanks. Um, so even if somehow, somehow, Elisa had smuggled her own ladder onto the roof, the lids of the tanks were extremely heavy. So, so she would have had to climb up the fire escape with a ladder place the ladder next to the fire escape and make sure it was tall enough, like it needed to be like a 10 foot tall ladder. And then she would have had to lift this heavy lid high enough for her to be able to fit inside. It just doesn't sound possible. And this is something that's never been explained. You know, how exactly did she get on the roof was probably the fire escape, but how'd she get to the water tank? And how did she get in the water tank? Um, also mysterious and creepy, um, Elisa's Tumblr blog, Nouvelle Nouveau, uh, continued to update for six months following her death. So it's possible that Elisa used a service like Hootsuite. I think Tumblr actually has its own scheduled post feature as well, um, so that she could pre-schedule posts, which people do when they're busy, but, you know, it's odd that Elisa would have pre-scheduled posts so far out, you know, unless it's something monumental, like a book or movie release or something, um, you know, people normally schedule posts out maybe one to two weeks, so six months for a 21-year-old girl with a fashion blog is kind of odd, and it was also really unsettling for her followers to see, because at this point everyone knows Elisa Lam is dead and her blog is updating as if she was alive. Um, so it was reported that her cell phone was never found. Um, it's possible someone had stolen her cell phone, uh, never had any more activity, but she was logged into her blog on the cell phone. So one theory is that whoever stole her phone, you know, most likely it's someone that wasn't responsible for her death, but just stole a cell phone. They could have been trolling and updated her blog. Um, also, hackers could have updated her blog, but the thing was the blog updates were in the style and tone of Elisa Lamb. So it seemed very unlikely that someone else was running this blog on her behalf. And that just adds to the creep factor of this whole story. So of course, David and Yina Lamb, uh, who were Elisa's parents, filed a wrongful death lawsuit in September 2013, uh, stating that the hotel failed to inspect and seek out hazards in the Cecil Hotel that presented an unreasonable risk of danger to Elisa Lamb and the other hotel guests. And they sought unspecified damages and burial costs for Elisa. So in response, the Cecil Hotel, you know, did give their condolences to the Lamb family, but they argued that they had no way to foresee what was going to transpire. Like, since it, to this day, is unknown exactly how Elisa wound up in that water tank, no liability can be assigned for the failure to prevent her drowning. So as of right now, no one is responsible for her drowning. And as a result, you know, courts dismissed the Lamb's suit in uh, 2015. So they, they lost the case basically because no one can be deemed responsible for their daughter's death. So interestingly enough, uh, the Cecil Hotel had a boom of business uh, following the discovery of Elisa's lamb body. People were flocking to the hotel and the rooms were actually sold out for months. There were even reporters who went to the hotel in the weeks following her death and just stayed there for a couple nights and wrote down what they felt when they were there and what they experienced when they were there. Um, as a result, guests were asked to sign waivers that released the Cecil Hotel from any liability should the guests become ill during their stay. And the waiver actually said, you stay here at your own risk and peril. So, you know, you've got contaminated water, you've got a mysterious death, you've got murders, you've got serial killers, you've got suicides, you've got 
death from below by a jumper. Like, there's a lot of things going on with the Cecil Hotel. So I don't blame them for saying you stay here at your own risk and peril. Like, you pretty much do. Um, they did give the guests water bottles to use for drinking and showering, and they advised them not to drink the tap water um, while all of the tanks in the building were being drained, flushed, and sanitized. So even though Elisa was only in one tank, uh, they did drain and sanitize all of the tanks, all of the pipes, everything like that. Um, there weren't any, you know, cases of illness based on people drinking the water that Elisa was in. And according to the LAPD, that's because they had chlorine in the city's water to keep it cleaner, and that helped to clean it to keep the decomposition from really affecting someone's health. So, you know, that that's... Ugh. Elisa's death is still listed as an accidental drowning to this day, so five and a half years after she died, it's still just listed as an accidental drowning. And, you know, those four theories are still circulating all over the internet. If you type in Elisa Lamb death on Google, you will get, you know, the party drugs, you will get the elevator game, you will get the pursuit, you will get the mental illness. Those are all four standing theories, even as far-fetched as the elevator theory seems, and even though, you know, toxicology ruled that she didn't have party drugs in her system, those two theories are still holding strong as a result. And the most unfortunate thing is we're likely never going to know exactly what happened to Elisa Lam on January 31st, 2013. We're never going to know what she was doing in that elevator. And all that's really going to come from it is, you know, a, the story of Elisa Lam is extremely popular on the internet. It's extremely popular on internet forums. And she's probably just going to remain a mystery similar to the Black Dahlia, where no one knows and it's an unsolved mystery that just sticks with you. The way it has stuck with me since I heard the story as a college student myself at that point, it's just going to stick with me that we're never going to know what happened to this girl. And I do have to say, since it is an unsolved case, if you do have any information pertaining to Elisa Lamb's mysterious demise, you know, contact the Los Angeles Police Department. Don't troll or anything like that, but if someone out there is listening to True Crime Tea right now and you do have information of what happened to Elisa, report it to the LAPD and, you know, a little can go a long way. One little tip can really solve a case. So I do want to leave you guys with that. And that is the story of Elisa Lamb. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to this first episode of True Crime Tea. I hope you guys really enjoyed this. You know, as I mentioned, this is a story that stuck with me. Um, next week, I haven't decided which case we're going to have, but next Monday, there will be a second episode. So make sure to uh, follow and subscribe to this podcast so that way you always get the latest episode of True Crime Tea for your morning commute. Um, you can also follow me on all social media at the Angie Chew. Again, that's the Angie Chew. And you can let me know how I did. You can send me cases that you think I'd find interesting. Um, if you did want that 30 minutes of intro about my life that I refuse to provide, uh, you can slide into those DMs and ask me personally. Um, but again, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I will be back next week with an all new true crime case. And this has been True Crime Tea. Take care, guys.